time for the April 14, 2023 edition of Weekly Signals, Weekly Review, a personal recollection of the last 168 hours of history, broadcasting on Dictionary Day from the University of California at Irvine on KUCI 88.9 FM. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And as always... The best overall stain remover for all your fabrics, Mahler, <laughs> the fake news dog. <laughs> Woo, what a day. Yeah. What He's feeling day. good. What a week. Today, we'll be talking about climate crisis fungus, an electric vehicle revolution, free lunch Republicans, and so much more. But first, squirrels. Squirrels? Squirrels, yeah. Squirrels, squirrels, squirrels. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah you want to get Mahler worked up, start talking about all the squirrels that torment him every single day of his life. There's a lot of them around here, too. Yeah, there are. You don't think they're there. No. And then there's a squirrel. There you go. Have you ever seen, a, like, a bunch of squirrels? Oh, a bunch. I've seen two or three. A group is called a scurry. A scurry. Oh. I like that, because they kind of scurry. They do. Or you can call them a dray. I don't get that one, but... Yeah. Apparently, it has nothing to do with the doctor. I'm going to go with Scurry yeah. on this one, yeah. Our good friend Leslie Smith, oh, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. Jim Washburn's wife. Yes. Uh, she's a squirrel enthusiast. Very good. I think uh, Mahler, too. Mahler, too. Oh. <laughs> loves squirrels. I, I would say Mahler yeah. has a love-hate relationship with squirrels. <laughs> yeah. 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 From the Washington Post, a massive wave of squirrels once scurried across different portions of North America. Portions. <laughs> what a word to use. Yeah, portions. Washington Post, they use the word portions yeah. when it comes to, to regions. Yeah. Every few years, thousands of eastern gray squirrels moved in a roughly southeasterly direction. Usually in the fall, they surged through forest, their natural habitats, and into prairies, an unnatural habitat. They tore through cornfields like leggedy locusts. Yeah, water was no deterrent. Great furry squirrel armadas swam across the Ohio River wow. in 1819, the Niagara in 1866, the Mississippi in 1881, arriving bedraggled and exhausted at the far shore where they were easy prey for hungry animals, astounded at the sudden, sodden bounty. The sodden bounty. That yeah. is, boy, that's some, uh, that's some writing there. In yeah, that's some good writing, except... Yeah. You know, how'd they end up with portions? Well, portions in yeah. North America, and yeah. then they got some good stuff. Yeah. Do you ever smell a wet squirrel, Mike? Have I ever what? Have you ever caught the fragrance of a squirrel who had oh, gotten it, wet? The, the, the musky odor of a Kind of uh, like, of a, kind of of like a, wet a dog, you know? Yeah, yeah, very much like a dog. Yeah. In 1920, a wildlife writer named Ernest Seton tried to quantify the squirrel phenomena and reported that it took a month for a squirrel army to pass by. Wow. Seton put the speed of the squirrels at five miles a day. That's for a squirrel, that's got to be moving a bit. Yeah. He estimated that there were about 30,000 squirrels per square mile in the immigration. Oh my God. And that the entire mass movement could have included more than 400 million squirrels. Oh, my God. These were immigrations, not migrations. Caribou migrate. They move back and forth between habitat. These were immigrations. Uh, these squirrels were on a one-way journey. Wow. 
Wow. The last notable immigration was the Great Squirrel Immigration of 1968, when squirrels from Vermont to Virginia took off because of a chestnut shortage. This attracted a lot of attention. Hunters demanded squirrel season be open early. You're seeing all these squirrels, millions of them pass by. But is is that really hunting when there's 100,000 of them running in front of you? uh, Is that really... You guys out there with your I, big guns. I hate guns. to use the word, word mass murderers. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Come on. So we call them hunters, I guess. Hunters. Yeah. Give me a break. And bag limits were doubled. Oh, my God. Well, maybe they ate them. I had a friend who ate squirrel. Yeah. Okay. I mean, he lived out in the forest. Yeah. He, yeah. Maybe it was that kind of deal going on. I, okay. In the Appalachians. Yeah. They're getting hungry. They bag a squirrel. The yeah. most vivid accounts of squirrel immigrations date to a time when old growth forests had yet to be logged when bison roamed the west and flocks of passenger pigeons darkened the skies. <laughs> this is a long time ago. <laughs> Just imagine, though, Mike, squirrels as far as the eye could see. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. What about, you didn't cover one of the most important squirrel stories. Rocky and Bullwinkle? Flying squirrels. Well, I, you know, flying squirrels, they're just show-offs. Yeah, they're so, okay. Now, this, is, this is a lot of just common squirrels. Common squirrels, Going yeah. somewhere. Yeah. They found some uh, large flying squirrels, though, lately. There's a, a three-foot-long one they uh, ran across. Yeah. How'd you like to be hit by one of those? <laughs> no. It's a flying squirrel. Yeah. You're just walking through the yeah. forest. Yeah. The next time you know. Yeah. Bam. Bam. Yeah. Are you a vegetarian? I mean, did you ever eat squirrel? How about never that? had. As yeah. far as I know, I've never had squirrel. But uh, have you had other meat? I've really been kind of traditional meat eater when I ate meat. It was, you know, you got your pig, you got your chicken, you got your cow. I don't even remember eating. But you do eat some meat now. No. None at all? No. When's the last time you had meat? Uh, You know what? My my weakness is Easter. I like ham. It's kind of the last of my meat. (laughs) So so we, we just had Easter. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. We didn't have ham this year, oh. but when that's a tough one for me to get yeah. through. Get through the. I, I don't like ham. That's funny. Yeah, I, it's yeah. salty. That's my problem. Oh, that's it. I yeah, remember your salt addiction. Yeah, yeah, I'm a salt addiction. Are you ready for your stroke? Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to have a stroke here. So yeah. So you eat a lot of salt because someone well, no, once I mean, that told was, you. That's one yeah. thing. One thing about the meat thing, but uh, yeah, I try not to. Yeah, I try. From National Geographic. You might say that carnivorous animals are just indiscriminate meat eaters. You know, you just throw down a chunk of meat, yeah. animals. Yeah. Like, like Mahler, for example. Yeah. He, would, he would just, <laughs> yeah, Mahler, yeah. Yeah, feed me meat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> feed me meat. You know, Mahler would eat just any cut of lamb. Yeah, you yeah. throw them. Yeah. Any cut. Yeah. But killer whales are ripping open the bellies of sharks, taking down a dozen or more sharks in one day. And rather than feasting on every meaty morsel, they're meticulously cutting out the livers and leaving the rest of the kill to rot. Really? Yeah. This preference for a particular organ is not odd for orcas, according to marine biologists. They're known around the world for going after the choicest cuts of their prey. One of the best Well-known examples is from New South Wales, Australia, where whalers and killer whales cooperatively hunted baleen whales. The orcas would eat the baleen whale's tongue through the lower jaw. In other words, uh, the uh, whalers would catch these whales and have them on the side of the ship, 
And the orcas would eat the uh, tongue that of was the it. Uh, that baleen was whales. Yeah, that's it, huh? Wow. To this day, orcas in various regions still chow down on whale tongue. Hmm. You know, there's a Dalai Lama joke in there somewhere. <laughs> if you'd like to hear more stories about squirrel immigration and whale tongues, may I recommend a donation to KUCI instead? Just go to KUCI.org. Your generous donation is how we stay on air. Commercial free, free form, free speech radio, KUCI 88.9 FM. Speaking of cuts, from Axios, the Biden administration moved closer to imposing unprecedented cuts in how much water Arizona, California, and Nevada can pool from the Colorado River while raising the possibility that these reductions could be distributed in ways that contradict longstanding water rights that favor powerful farming regions. Okay. We're getting down now. Yeah, we are. Over the past year, the seven states of the Colorado River Basin, that would be Arizona, California, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming, have been unable to reach an agreement among themselves to make major cuts to protect the reservoirs. The federal government expects to make a decision by August. You know who's been the most recalcitrant in this uh, negotiations? Who? California. Well, yeah, we have the most to lose. Yes. We also have probably, I would assume, we have the largest agricultural interest of any of those oh, states. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah I would think we have more agricultural interest than most any country in the world. Probably right. One option would be the regulations would strictly follow water rights and give priority to farming regions in California, like the Imperial Valley, that stock supermarkets across the country with winter vegetables while letting a large part of the water supply of Phoenix and Los Angeles get taken virtually to zero. That's one option. Another option would distribute up to 2 million acre feet of cuts in water usage, more than 15% of the river's average flow over the past two decades in the same percentage across all users in Arizona, California, and Nevada. So it's just ag, yeah. regular folk like you and me, all the same. Yeah. That would be different from how cuts have been distributed in the past. Both federal and state officials have warned that the third option, changing nothing, would suck the hardest. Yeah. We got to do something. We have to do something. And it's going to be tough. The uh, climate crisis and the rudification of the West have put the reservoirs on Lake Powell and Lake Mead, the water supply for tens of millions of people, on a path toward falling so far that the dams could no longer produce hydropower or even hit Deadpool, when water would effectively be blocked from flowing to the southern states. And we've come dangerously close to that this last year or so. The uh, hydroelectric aspect of that. They came very close to not being able to produce hydroelectric power. From Los Angeles Times, researchers increasingly believe that the yeast Candida auris is the first pathogenic fungus to arise from global warming. In 2022, there were nearly 2,400 infections in 28 states, with Nevada and California reporting the highest numbers. Clinical cases have increased every year since 2016. The 2022 count is almost 40 times what amounted over a three-year span 
starting in 2013, the year of the first known case in the United States. This is a fungus that they believe has been caused by global warming. The fungus was first discovered in any human in 2009 when doctors recovered it from a Japanese woman's ear and named it Auris, Latin for ear. While cases of Candida auris have been nationally notifiable since 2019, it is still not a reportable disease in every state. That means that the only data the CDC receives to drive its guidance is what state health departments voluntarily submit. So it could be a lot more. Could or, be a lot more. Okay. And it also makes it tough on the CDC to figure out how urgent this is. With some choosing not to submit their case data, or worse, not collecting it in the first place, cases are likely underreported. The climate crisis will invariably bring new fungal diseases. Something else to look forward to. A threat to our collective well-being is best messed with a collective effort. Candida Oris offers us a chance to strengthen our response. From the Washington Post, let's move on from fungus. Okay, kind of all right. Scientists have documented an abnormal and dramatic surge in sea levels along the U.S., Gulf, and southeastern coastline since about 2010, raising new questions about whether New Orleans, Miami, Houston, or Newport Beach might even be more at risk from rising sea levels than once predicted. Mm -hmm. The acceleration could have far-reaching consequences in an area of the United States that has seen massive development as wetlands, mangroves, and shorelines that once protected it are shrinking. Mm -hmm. An already vulnerable landscape that is home to millions of people and is growing more vulnerable more quickly, potentially putting coastal communities at greater risk from severe storms and flooding. As sea level rise has already had major effects. Recent devastating hurricanes, including Michael in 2018 and Ian last year, were made considerably far worse by faster rising oceans. Yeah. I mean, the the yeah. area around New Orleans, the Delta, has been shrinking for a long time, many, many years. It's been shrinking. We all know what's happening. Uh -huh. There just seems to not be the political will. We know the engineering part of it. We, we know ways in which we can mitigate it. But unfortunately for that region of New Orleans, it's also an area where there's a lot of oil and gas refineries in chemical refineries and in Houston as well. And they don't want to do anything about it because it would mess up their refineries. Yeah. And the other thing is, is, I mean, we report this all the time. Yeah. And it sounds like we're, saying, we're repeating the same story. Yeah. But every time we're bringing these stories up, we're saying, you know, it's worse than we thought it was. Yeah, exactly. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. Visit us on the web at KUCI.org, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash KUCI 88.9, on our Tumblr blog at KUCIRadio.tumblr.com, and on Twitter and Instagram at KUCIFM. <laughs> From Scientific American. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency proposed a landmark set of pollution regulations that could spark an electric vehicle revolution and drive down greenhouse gas emissions. Under the rules, electric vehicles could account for an estimated 67% of new U.S. passenger car sales by 2032, 
and additional gains for larger vehicles. A major feat for a country where transportation is the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm. That's right. The mm. rules, which are currently in draft form pending public comments, apply to automobiles sold between 2027, so it's coming up, coming and up. 2032. 2030. They would reduce the average emissions from new passenger vehicles by more than half compared to the existing standard. Challenges to establishing the new regulations include the need to roll out a charging infrastructure. Yes, which is part of the Build Back Better plan. Ramp up manufacturing capacity for electric cars, which is exactly another part of the plan, Mm -hmm. and convincing people to change their habits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, I think, is going to be the toughest. Yeah. Yeah. People are reluctant to change in any way, and they have this odd fascination with gas. This is the thing. This is where government is important in our lives. This is where government makes a difference, and that is the ability to put together broad initiatives that will allow our society to move forward, whereas if you left it up to the private sector, it would be all about profit. It would be all about market share. The government has no interest in market share or profit. It has an interest in the greater good, theoretically, and this is certainly a great example of that in the same way that the development of the Internet is a great example of that as well. Well, we have to have a golden bridge for these people. Yes, we do. Plug, don't pump. Mm-hmm. You like that? Mm-hmm. Plug, yeah. don't pump. Plug, don't pump. Yeah. I like that. See? That's a good one. Yeah. yeah I, I taught Mahler the oh, plug, okay. don't pump. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Mahler. Got a <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Plug, don't pump. Plug, don't, don't pump. pump. Yeah. Good. I, we need a little tune, a little something to go with Plug, that. Don't Maybe. Pump. Can, yeah. Can, yeah. So. From the Hill, a Tennessee politician met with students protesting gun violence after the recent mass shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And the encounter revealed how little gun rights politicians know about guns. Gun right politicians. You know those guys. Yeah, I know those guys. The students protested outside of the Tennessee State Capitol in Nashville on Monday in response to three children and three adults who had their bodies blown to bits by a semi-automatic AR-15 in the Covenant School shooting on March 27th. The protesters, comprised of students from schools across Nashville, displayed posters that read, Book Bags, Not Body Bags and thoughts and prayers are useless to dead children. These are kids holding these things. Tennessee State Representative William Lambert, a Republican, agreed to meet with the protesters, and when the conversation turned to the subject of AR-15 firearms, one of which was used in the shooting, Lambert asked the students which gun they preferred to be shot with instead of an AR-15. So you're not going to like my answer, and look, I'm going to say this straight up. It's not about this one gun, Lambert said. If there is a firearm out there that you're comfortable being shot with, please show me which one it is. That is one of the most insensitive and idiotic things I think I've ever heard. Well, yeah, it is. My point would be, if I'm going to be shot, I like a choice in the gun. You would like a choice in the gun? Yeah. As if this I'm going with a two millimeter caliber. That's what I'm going with. I don't want an AR-15. Yeah, yeah. The two millimeter caliber, it's muzzle energy of four joules. For perspective, an average person's punch measures 10 to 15 joules. So it's like, it's like okay. Meaning that the round of a caliber has less energy than a punch. Okay. 
The AR-15, you know how many drills it has? You'll tell me. 1,800. Yeah, there yeah. you go. A regular pistol has about 500. This guy, it's just ignorance is what's playing out yeah. here. It's ignorance, and I, I got to believe he, he just hadn't thought through what he was saying. I hope to God that's the case. Well, he asking went on. Children, asking children what gun they would like to be shot with. He went on, though. Every single gun in the hands of a crazy person, a deranged person, a convicted felon, every single weapon out there can bring. Then a protester shouted back, a kid, when are you going to be more scared? When's somebody going to walk in the street with a giant f***ing gun for no reason? Nobody's going to do any good with that gun. That's what this kid's saying. To which Lamberth replied, you could ban that specific gun at that AR-15. And you're going to do almost nothing to improve y'all's safety. So he's thought about this. <sighs> I don't know what to say. He's saying. thought it through, and, and that's his... <laughs> that's he's thought he's it got. through. I like yeah. that. He really has sat down and really thought this through, hasn't he? Well, by the way, Tennessee does not currently have any red flag laws, no, which allow not. police intervention between people who own firearms and threaten to kill. I think they need to change the name of... Uh, Tennessee and Kentucky to Tombstone. Tombstone? That's good. I like that. Yeah. From the Bismarck Tribune, Bismarck, North Dakota. Mm -hmm. Ten days after narrowly defeating a bill to provide free school lunches to low-income K-12 students, the North Dakota Republican-dominated Senate approved legislation to increase the amount of money lawmakers and other state employees receive in meal reimbursements. Yeah. So they deprived these kids of their free lunch. Yeah. But they thought, well, we need a little bit more, more money for yeah, ours. Come on. A leading Republican senator said employee meal compensation rates and free school lunch programs aren't related issues. Food. <laughs> that's, that's how they're related. <laughs> food. Free food. Oh, God. Oh, but my top, God. Top Democrats see the chamber's conflicting actions on the two bills as unjustifiable. I thought today's vote was self-serving, said Senate Minority Leader Kathy Hogan, Democrat from Fargo. How can we vote for ourselves when we can't vote for children? In uh, late March, the Republican-dominated Senate rejected House Bill 1491, the children's lunch bill, by a single vote. That's a shame. Wow. The legislation which had previously passed the House would have dedicated $6 million over the next two years in school years to cover lunch costs for K-12 students with family incomes below double the federal poverty level. Wow. People go, ugh, $6 million. Okay, that's, that's one Newport Beach home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's half of a lot of what Newport Beach homes and maybe a tenth of some Newport Beach homes. Yeah. And what is it to Elon Musk? That's his lunch money. $6 million. Children from families of four making less than $60,000 a year would have qualified. Then, just last Thursday, the North Dakota Senate voted 26 to 21, another close vote, to pass Senate Bill 2124, which would raise the meal reimbursements received by state employees during travel within North Dakota. If Doug Burgum signs the bill, state employees could collect up to $45 a day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They currently get 35. Meanwhile, screw the kids. Yeah. Well, you know, Nana, let's be, let's be fair here. I mean, when you're one of the uh, you know, public officials, these Republicans, 
it's a lot of calories you use up over the course of the day stepping over children begging for food. That, that takes a lot of, that's a lot of energy. That. That's a good point. Yeah. Man. From Wired, bus and train surveillance videos show a litany of incidents since September in which anxiety and confusion stirred up by self-driving cars has spilled onto the streets of San Francisco, the U.S. city that has become the epicenter for testing them. As the incidents stack up, the companies behind the autonomous vehicles like Waymo and General Motors Cruise want to add more robo-taxis to San Francisco's streets, cover more territory, and run at all hours. Self-driving cars have completed thousands of journeys in San Francisco, taking people to work, to school, and to and from dates. They have also been a glitchy and sometimes dangerous nuisance snarling traffic and creeping into hazardous terrain like construction zones and downed power lines. Hmm. We're seeing a significant uptick in chaos on our streets, Jeffrey Tumblin, San Francisco's director of transportation, said. I'm not much of a fan of those. I, I don't think I would like to sit in a self-driving car. No. No, I have I no... I wouldn't want to sit in anything that's self-driving. Yeah, I'm with you. And I don't think I'm being a grumpy old man about it. I just... I'm Why not... are we taking away people's jobs in the first place? Yeah. I understand that, that trying to make it so that traffic runs smoothly. But when there's a glitch, it's a big glitch. Yeah. These cars are breaking down in areas that have prevented emergency vehicles from getting through and have just clogged up areas that make it dangerous for people to walk. Yeah. Yeah, if I was walking across the street and I could see a car coming at me that didn't have a driver? Uh, <laughs> I guess. I, mean, I don't know. I, I know that's the world we're heading towards in some manner of speaking. We're going to be dealing with that as, a, as human beings a lot more, but I, I just <laughs> I don't think I want to. How about, you know, here's something to tie in the porn industry <laughs> with the yes, autonomous uh, vehicle. Okay. Inflatable dolls. <laughs> you just strap them in in the front seat. Uh-huh. That might... Oh, there you go. Yeah, calm you. Yeah. When you see a, a, <laughs> one of these vehicles coming at you. Yeah. And it might actually perk you up a little bit. Yeah, it you might, know? it might, yeah. There you go. From Hyper Allergic. It's an odd name for a website. Hyper Allergic. Has nothing to do with allergies, at least I can tell. A new gallery exhibition called Art and Artifice, Fakes from the Collection, will be on view from June 17th to October 8th at the Courtauld Gallery in London. The exhibition will include over 30 artworks formerly misattributed to artistic masters, including Sandro Botticelli and Auguste Rodin, in a public display for the first time. A virgin and child forgery painted in the 1920s by forger extraordinaire Umberto Giunti, who ripped off the style of Botticelli, was thought to be an original by the Renaissance master Sandro Botticelli until a closer look detected modern pigments in use and pinpointed a 1920s film star as the inspiration for Mother Mary. <laughs> okay. Also on display, a work by Dutch forger Han van Meegeren, a known Vermeer copyist who went on trial for selling paintings imitating the style of the Dutch master to the Nazi elite during World War II. So he was selling them to Nazis. But that's the fun part about it. 
Van Miggeren became a national hero after World War II when it was revealed that he had sold a forged painting to Hermann Göring <laughs> during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. It's a good thing they didn't win the war. From Van Miggeren, yeah, 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 I get you. Because Göring would be pretty upset. I think he would be. I'm just... But maybe he'd never catch on, though, too. <laughs> yeah. they, they were pretty stupid, those guys. You think? They thought. They thought they were smarter than they were. Yeah. From The Guardian... To the admiring patrons of a special exhibition at the Orlando Museum of Art, they were among Jean-Michel Basquiat's finest works, Mm. the angst of the troubled 1980s neo-expressionist rebel shining through the vivid colors of his exhibition there. Mm. But what the paying public was really viewing were fakes. Hastily slapped on offcuts of cardboard in 30 minutes or less by an auctioneer and his accomplice cashing in on the late artist's famous name in primitive style. The fraud came to light through an FBI investigation into the museum's much-vaunted Heroes and Monsters exhibition last year, featuring 25 pieces purportedly by Bascaya, whose work has previously sold for $110 million. Oh, in fact, hello. The, all these 25 pieces were valued at $100 million before they found out they were fakes. According to the Justice Department, Michael Barsman, 45, a storage unit auctioneer from North Hollywood, California, saw an opportunity to make money by replicating the works of the artist who died of a heroin overdose in 1988 at the age of 27. Together with his sidekick, known only by, this is the auctioneer, together with his sidekick, known only by the initials J.F., Barsman sold the fakes on eBay using the cover story that they were discovered after years hidden in in an abandoned storage locker. The scam was exposed when a consultant spotted a FedEx label on the backside of one of the fakes, because they were made out of cardboard, used a typeface not introduced until 1994, the FedEx label, six years after Baskaya's desk. You'd think if you're doing a scam like that, you'd be a little bit more careful. You would. But he was doing these like in 30 minutes. He would do a, he was, it's a Picasso type of thing, <laughs> yeah, you know. Exactly. He's throwing out these Bascayas <laughs> in 30 minutes and making probably, I'd say about $100,000 or so on yeah, each one. They, yeah. don't, they didn't say how much he made. Maybe there's some sort of law suit. I am sure that there is some kind of prosecution pending on all of this. Um, and that has really been one of the uh, dark secrets of the art world is how much fraud goes on, has gone on, and how long many of these fraudsters have been able to get away with it. There is the uh, documentary that came out last year about the, the lost Leonardo painting. Yeah, yeah. And whether or not that's even real or not. And some Saudi prince paid a couple of hundred million dollars for it. Uh-huh. And we don't know for sure that it's even a Leonardo yeah. Da Vinci. So it's, yeah, it's one of those crazy. Well, I think that's one way if we, we ever have uh, any disagreements with the th- Saudis, yeah. heaven forbid, uh, heaven forbid, that we can get back at them. <laughs> we just can have a lot of art forgeries. <laughs> it's true. And just sell them at exorbitant prices. Yeah. The, I think it's been, uh, been Salman. Is the one. They think, I don't know, but they think it's been Salman who bought, who bought this painting. And he actually constructed a museum in the middle of nowhere uh-huh. for this particular piece of artwork, uh-huh. which we don't know for sure is even a da Vinci. Uh-huh. So good on him for all that. Yeah, see? I mean, that, yeah. not only is it humiliating, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but it's, it's costing a lot of bucks. Yeah. And finally, from Julian's Auctions, an original, not a fake, an original 8 by 10 inch photograph featuring comedy great Harpo Marx posing nude while on the set of the 1932 Marx Brothers Paramount film Horse Feathers will be auctioned this month. Harpo, who played the character Pinky in the film, was known to publicly <laughs> bear himself for a laugh, though no images of his indecent behavior are known to have been found until now. For what it's worth, if you're interested in this, it's going for about, uh, the bids are up to about 4500 now. It's online. Yeah. They're having pre-bidding now, or you know, pre-show bidding, uh -huh. pre-auction bidding. Uh -huh. The Marx Brothers were known for nude gags. In one instance, one night as Harpo and Groucho were headed to a bachelor's party in a hotel, they decided to play a gag which entailed walking out of the elevator nude into a suite. It was one of those elevators where you just walk into whoever's room uh -huh. you're going to and surprising their friends. While in the elevator, the brothers undressed and put all their clothes into the suitcases they were carrying. But Harpo and Groucho accidentally landed on the wrong floor walking nude, carrying suitcases, exposing themselves to a horrified, all-female bridal shower. You can subscribe to the Weekly Signals Weekly Review podcast at weeklysignals.com. Weeklysignals.com. Subscribe now.